All right, well, good morning. We will go ahead and uh, get started with our, our uh, continuing study through systematic theology together. Um, but before we open God's word together, let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are before you this morning. And God, uh, we give thanks to you that... Um, <clears throat> Lord, that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who sanctifies our worship, and it is the, the Holy Spirit of God who um, applies the word to our hearts and enlightens our hearts and gives us understanding. Uh, and so we look to you in dependence um, and in expectant faith, Lord, that you will, <clears throat> you will open your word, um, that it will accomplish the purpose for which it is sent forth. Um, and we pray that our hearts would be attuned to the working of your Holy Spirit and that these truths would sink deep into our hearts and truths which we already affirm we would, um, we would grow uh, in our understanding together. Father, before you and before uh, this congregation, I, um, I confess my complete um, inadequacy to expound these things. I am not sufficient for these things, um, but your Spirit is. I pray that he would work uh, in spite of me, and uh, Lord, that we would be, all of us, drawn um, in our focus, in our gaze, in our adoration uh, to you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are going to continue this morning in the study that Scott uh, began for us last week through theology proper, um, the doctrine of God, and the subjects that are allotted for us this morning to cover are the nature or the essence of God and the attributes of God. And I can tell you very honestly that when J.D. sent out the Sunday school schedule showing that those were uh, the subjects I was to cover on this, on this Sunday, the thought that actually ran through my mind was, seriously? <laughs> I mean, seriously, like, how... Uh, I, I, I've thought, was J.D. just like laughing as he, as he typed that into the schedule? You know, he'll have no idea what hit him. Um, and, uh, you know, as of uh, last night, that is precisely how I felt. Um, but I'm also excited uh, to, to look at some of these truths together. Overwhelmed, fearful, excited because we know that it is God who applies the word through his spirit. So God in his sovereignty has brought us to this, to this task, to this study. The doctrines of the nature of God, that is, what and who he is at the very heart of his being, his essence. And the doctrines of the attributes or the perfections of God, what he has, what he possesses, the traits which he possesses. So in one sense, the task that we have at hand to study these things is truly impossible. And we will inevitably fall short. It's needless to say, 45 minutes and my abilities as a teacher, meager as they are, are insufficient to this task. But even if we had all year to study this subject, and if I had a lot more letters next to my name, there are zero next to it, by the way, right now, um, we could still never fully understand God, as Scott was teaching us last Sunday. To us as mortal, finite beings, the infinity of his perfection is incomprehensible. 
And this is a, a doctrine that we affirm and espouse, the incomprehensibility of God. That is not to say that he is um, unknowable, but that he is not able to be understood exhaustively or in full. This reality should humble and sober us as we come to this study. It is good because humility, fear, reverence, and awe are the only proper heart attitudes that we may have in approaching the study of the nature and the person of God. There's this old saying that I'm reminded of that goes, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And as J.I. Packer wrote in his book, Knowing God, in our hearts we should remove the sandals of our feet for the ground upon which we walk is holy. The incomprehensibility of God is a doctrine that we espouse, one that we bear in mind as we delve into this theology proper. Um, but we also believe that God can be known. Although not fully, we can know and understand some things uh, that are true about him. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the really kind of cool things about growing up where I did in the... Uh, um, middle of nowhere desert uh, in Arizona is that because of the, um, the fact that you were 45 miles from the nearest Walmart, there was zero light pollution at night. And one of my favorite uh, things to do with my brothers was to go out. Um, we, we lived in the high desert, and so we had this patch of about 30 square feet of grass uh, that we were very proud of. And, uh, I mean, we called it grass. Around here, you would just, I'm not sure what you would call it. It wouldn't really probably qualify. But we would throw our sleeping bags out there on this, on this patch of grass and, and lay out under the stars and just gaze up and watch. And um, in beholding that infinity, um, I know that I did not comprehend all that I saw. It's impossible. Uh, as an eight-year-old boy, did I understand... Um, the, the hundreds of millions of stars that exist in our galaxy alone or of the incomprehensible number of galaxies that there are um, in the universe, none of this did I really get. But my parents had taught me where to find certain guiding stars, constellations. And that was a love of mine to, to find those things. Um, Orion's belt and... Uh, Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, um, and Polaris, the North Star. Um, so as we, coming to this infinite subject, behold a volume of truth beyond comprehension, God in his grace and his mercy has provided for us certain doctrines that, that are like those constellations, like those guiding stars, and they give us truths about God and ways that we may understand him in part. He's given us those guideposts. <clears throat> so as we consider the infinity of his perfections, and that God, has, in his gracious mercy, has given us, we're looking at his nature and his attributes. So there has always been sort of a point of, of contention or um, varying positions as to what the relationship between God's attributes, his perfections, and his nature truly is. And it's important that we get this right, um, because it can lead into theological error, 
the medieval th- theologians uh, tended to, to believe that God's attributes, his perfections, um, that they together added up to the sum of him, um, but that they were separate and distinct from his nature. Um, open theism holds that God uh, possesses one attribute or perfection, that is his love, that is uh, central or primary to all of the others, and that they are um, held partially by him, his other perfections, and that it is separate and distinct from his nature. Um, but there are problems with uh, both of these positions. And so the correct um, perspective, the correct understanding of the relation between God's attributes, his perfections, and his nature um, is, is grounded in a doctrine that which we will get to in just a bit. So we will come back to that, but it's important that we understand the relation between God's attributes and his nature. Every part of this book reveals God. From the historical narratives to the songs, to the gospels, to the letters, the whole of scripture has something to say about who he is. And it is an incomprehensibly vast volume of information. So with so much to take in and so little time, where do we start? I think it's right that we begin where Jesus began in his exposition of God to the woman at the well. So uh, turn, if you would, to John chapter 4. Verse 24. Jesus says to this woman, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So this statement of Christ uh, to this woman at the well reveals the first two doctrines that we're going to consider this morning relating to the nature of God and his being. The first is the spirituality of God. In the Greek language, the emphasis of what Jesus says is actually on the word spirit, and it could be read, spirit is God. Jesus is speaking of God in his essence, in his nature, And what we are to understand from this is that he is immaterial, that he is without a body, he is invisible, and he is in every place. Such impact to these three words. Uh, Jesus, in a few moments, gives to this woman more clarity and simplicity in the mystery of the knowledge of God than thousands of years of, of sages and philosophers blindly groping to know God. He leads her to the fountainhead of knowledge. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, The second truth that we can see here is that um, while God is, as a spirit, uh, non-corporeal, that he is invisible, um, we also see that he is a personable and knowable God. And we see that in the second part of the statement where he says, they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So what Jesus is teaching, what he is saying, is that there is within man a spirit which, though fallen, through the rebirth and regeneration 
has potential to relate to and commune with the eternal God, the spirit of spirits through worship. And this part of man that is wakened to life when he is saved finds its source in the life of God. So there is a part within man breathed into him as God breathed his life into the first Adam, which corresponds in likeness to God. This is what it means that we are made in the image of God. And being made in his image, we are able through regeneration in Christ to commune with him in worship. God is a spirit. He is invisible and in every place. And he is personal and knowable in his spirit. So how do we learn what the spiritual God is like? Again, all of scripture teaches us who he is and what he is like. But one of the constellations, one of those guiding stars that I want us to look at um, is the name of God. And we find it in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. So turn there. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I love how kind of diplomatic Moses is in asking this question. Um, sort of a roundabout way of saying, God, um, I'm not sure I know your name. If they ask me, who, what is his name, what shall I tell them? And God graciously reveals to Moses and to his people and to us his personal name. Say to this people, I am has sent me to you. Thus am I to be remembered throughout all generations. So God has given his, us his name. But what does this mean? What is the significance of this um, in our study of theology? How does it tell us who this spiritual God is? So before we can appreciate the gravity of what is happening here with God revealing his personal name, we need to get some background, I think, for how the significance of a name in this uh, ancient Near Eastern culture differs um, from our own Western culture. So we might choose a name for any number of reasons. Um, we like the way that it sounds, or it reminds us of, of uh, someone that we, that we knew, that we loved. And uh, this was one of the things about having children that I was wholly and completely unprepared for, the agonizing process that we would go through in choosing a name. Um, Tally and I had to go out and buy all the baby name books, and the people that publish uh, those types of things just saw us coming a mile away. Um, and it took everything short of an act of Congress to break the filibuster between us. We had our, <laughs> we had our, uh, our lists uh, of names that made the cut, and we had different criteria for why we liked which name, and I, 
but it, it really not much of it, if any of it, had anything to do with the actual meaning uh, behind the names uh, themselves. And that's, that's really kind of how our, our Western culture looks at, at names. But in the Eastern culture, to this very day, and much more so in biblical times, the meaning of a name was so significant because a person's name was thought to represent them, their uh, reputation, their character, their glory, their person in a very profound way. A name was seen to be a sort of a key uh, to understanding the bearer of that name's nature, their essence. So significant was the connection between a name and the name bearer that the two would be used often synonymously. And we see the name of God being used synonymously with his person throughout the scriptures. And so in revealing his personal name, to Moses, God was opening a window into his very nature. So let's consider the name of God that he has given. I am. Two words that in both the Hebrew and the English uh, take the same uh, part of speech. A first person singular nominative personal pronoun. The in- present and a first person singular present indicative of be. It's very interesting in the Hebrew language. Um, this first person present indicative of be has evolved completely out of their usage. They do not say it to this day. And many people don't even understand why they could say I was or I will be, but never say I am going to be. And it is because um, throughout antiquity there has been such a a reverence and a fear of taking the name of God in vain that they they would not use it. Um, They've even changed their numbering system so that uh, numbers, I think it's 15 and 16, which um, could, by happenstance, spell out the name of God, are never written that way but are written as equations. Um, There's this great fear around the name of God. And in Deuteronomy, Moses says that we are to do all of the works of this law that you may fear the great and awesome name of Yahweh. But what does this name tell us about who he is? What key doctrines do we find within it? First of all, we see that because he gives us this name with no qualifier with no descriptor, it is conspicuously absent. We learn that God in his essence defies description or categorization. He is unlike everything that we might compare him to. To whom will you compare me, says the Lord? There is none like him. So I want to get into some key doctrines that we affirm that we can see in the name of God. The first of these is the self-existence of God or his independence. John MacArthur writes of the self-existence of God that the name of Yahweh implies God's being is derived from his own self-determination to be and to be what he is. God did not create anything because he was in any way incomplete. He did not make mankind because 
he was lonely or he lacked anything in his own person. While he is glorified in his creation and while we give him joy as his children, his independence, his self-existence as evidenced by his name teaches that he does not need us and he does not need any other created thing. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he is what he is, completely apart from what we believe him to be. You might hear someone say, and I know I've heard uh, things like this often, well, my God would never act that way. My God would never do that or be that. I heard someone say just this last week, I don't believe in a wrathful God. But God is who he is. He is not another aspect of our lives that we may... Um, customize after our own choosing. We cannot decide what aspects of his reality, of his being, we choose to believe and then think that we are okay. He is who he is. And he is self-existent. The name of God also speaks of his unchangeableness, his immutability, as theologians refer to it. From eternity past, to eternity future, he is. John Piper writes, God is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot be improved. He is not becoming anything. He is who he is. He does not change in his being, in his perfections, in his purposes, or in his promises. Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27 say, of old, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So the third key doctrine that is revealed in the name of God that I want us to consider this morning is the doctrine of his infinity. First, we want to see that God is infinite in relation to himself. We call this aspect of his nature his absolute perfection. The name of God, I am that I am, all that God is he is ad infinitum, without limit. All that God possesses continues forever and ever. None of his attributes, whether his love uh, or his wisdom or his grace or his mercy or his holiness, does he possess in part or partially. But all of his attributes, all of his perfections, he possesses in infinite measure. Secondly, we see that God 
is infinite in relation to time. He is that he is. We call this his eternality. Um, One of the things that uh, my daughter Lucy has often said to me as we are talking about the doctrines of God and she keeps coming back to us, Dad, I just can't wrap my head around how has God always been? And I'm like, it's okay, that's normal. From eternity past to eternity future, he is that he is. He has no beginning. God's eternality means that he will never end. He did not come into being, and therefore he cannot cease to be. There's never been a time when he was not, and before time existed, he was. He is Yahweh El Olam, the everlasting God. Thirdly, we see in the infinity of God that he is infinite in relation to space. And we call this his immensity. And uh, one of the passages that I looked at and just found so uh, exciting and interesting as I was considering the immensity of God, his infinity in relation to space, was in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, where at the dedication uh, of the temple, Solomon is, is praying this prayer, and he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? So in considering how how Solomon is, as he's reaching for some unit of measure to give us an idea of the vastness, the immeasurability of God, the immensity of God, he turns to space. And so uh, I naively thought, I'm going to do a study on, uh, on space, the size of space. I want to know how to wrap my head around uh, something like a light year, or how many light years are between us and the sun, and, and what is the, the number of stars in our galaxy. And, and uh, I can tell you that at, the deeper I got into that, it, I felt like there was a fuse or something that blew somewhere um, because <laughs> the galaxies, the universe, are infinite. Um, if you have the time to, to Google it, look up sometime something called um, ultra deep field or extreme deep field. Um, basically, what, what that means is that um, NASA took the Hubble telescope and focused it for five or six years on this space of the night sky next to the moon that if you were to hold up like a ballpoint pen, um, the, the tip of that pen would cover up about the area that they focused on for those five or six years. And they took photo after photo and what they found within that space, more than 6,000 galaxies, not stars. And multiply that by the 33 million times that it would take to cover the entire night sky, and you begin to understand something of the immensity of the unit of measure that is used that cannot even describe God in his immensity. He is infinite in relation to space. The last of these doctrines that we can see revealed in the name of God 
Um, and it, I, it seems to have not made it into my PowerPoint presentation, but it is his unity. Uh, theologians will call this doctrine his simplicity. This doctrine is so important, and it speaks to what we referred to earlier, this uh, relation between God's attributes, his perfections, and his nature, and it is uh, how we too are, are to understand that relation. Um, so it, something that... Uh, that John MacArthur has said here is that God, there is no essential distinction between God's essence and his perfections. He does not merely possess love. He does not merely possess justice or goodness. He is love and justice and goodness eternally and fully and completely. Whatever God is, he is in his totality, in his essence. If God is not fully and absolutely love, or fully and absolutely holy, or fully and absolutely good, then he is not fully and absolutely God. I am that I am. So all of these key doctrines that we have looked at, these perfections of God so far, that are drawn out of the name of God and are spoken of all throughout the, the scriptures relate to his nature and theologians refer to um, these doctrines as his incommunicable attributes, meaning that God alone possesses them. And the doctrines that we're going to consider with uh, the rest of our time this morning are what theologians would refer to as his communicable attributes, meaning that these perfections are all in some measure to be imitated in our lives. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, um, these categorizations that you find within systematic theology can be helpful, um, but we should also caution ourselves about uh, such categorizations because as we saw in the nature of the very name of God, he defies all categorization. Um, so they can be useful, but there is also... Uh, room within these categories. It's not a, uh, a hard and fast rule that each of these doctrines fits into one or the other. Um, but it is a categorization, his incommunicable and his communicable attributes that has stood the test of time. And so we do use it to help um, understand where some of these doctrines lie. Um, but the first of these communicable attributes that we want to look at is the knowledge or the omniscience of God. And for each of these, I'm going to use a definition that, um, that Wayne Grudem uses in his book, Systematic Theology, uh, because they're excellent definitions. But the knowledge of God means that God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we, we must give an account. Job 37 verse 16 tells us that this God is perfect in knowledge. The next attribute that we should consider this morning is the wisdom of God. God's wisdom means that God always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. 
Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. We also see throughout Scripture that God is truthful. We affirm the doctrine of his truthfulness. God's truthfulness means that he is the true God and that all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. In Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting God. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. John 17 and verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The next of God's communicable attributes is his goodness. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. Luke 18, verse 19, No one is good but God alone. And Psalm 106, verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This leads us to the next of these doctrines, these truths about God, his perfections, his love. God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. First John chapter 4 and verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This passage makes it clear to us that God's very nature, his essence, is to give of himself for the blessing and the good of others. The true extent to which he has given of himself is seen in the continuation of this passage from 1 John, where it says, and this is how God's love was revealed among us. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. First John chapter 4 and verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now the attribute of God's love, um, we, we, we love to, to, to sing about and we love to consider as it relates to us, but this is one of his perfections that um, existed before the world was ever created. And it was active in eternity past among the members of the Trinity. Because we, we see throughout the scriptures this love relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Um, <clears throat> Jesus said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given to me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And it is this, this Trinitarian Love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit that we ourselves are adopted into as we become partakers of the divine nature through faith in Christ. 
um, I find a lot of comfort, a lot of joy in considering the fact that God's purpose in showing love to me is a Trinitarian purpose, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit purposed in themselves to extend love to me, to give of themselves uh, to love me. Next, we see God's holiness. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. He's the most holy one. And uh, our passage for this is found in Isaiah in chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Next, we look at the righteousness or the justice of God. God's righteousness means that he always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Next, we see God's wrath. God's wrath means that he intensely hates all sin. John chapter 3 and verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You also see the doctrine in Scripture, the will of God. God's will is the attribute of God whereby he approves and determines to bring about every action necessary for the existence and activity of himself and all creation. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. Revelations 4 and verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. We also see throughout Scripture the doctrine of God's sovereignty, also called his omnipotence. God's omnipotence means that God is able to do all of his holy will. Genesis 18 and verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Jeremiah 32 verse 17, nothing is too hard for you. And Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. He is absolutely sovereign, orchestrating all things together for the purpose of his holy will. Next, we see his blessedness. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 15, um, Paul refers to God as being the blessed and only sovereign. That word blessed uh, carries with it the meaning of a, of a happiness that is deep and rich and profound in a very full sense. Uh, this God is characterized 
uh, in one of his perfections as being um, fully, deeply, richly happy. He is blessed. God's blessedness means that God delights fully in himself and in all that reflects his character. And then finally, we see the perfection of God's beauty as being one of his attributes. God's beauty is that attribute of God whereby he is the sum of all desirable qualities. All that we desire innately that is good, every longing of the heart that we have and which we ought to have, is satisfied ultimately and only in God and nothing else. Psalm 27, verse 4, David writes, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And Psalm 73, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. So, we've, we've had the opportunity this morning to point out a couple of, of constellations, a few guiding stars. But there's still an infinity of truth that God has revealed about himself. And I hope that um, our time together has served only to whet your appetite um, because there is so much to learn. And this is what we were created for, to know him. Um, so thank you, and you're dismissed. <laughs>